Well, good afternoon. We got about an hour, and I want to stick to our time frame. And I just want to encourage you that a lot of you have sacrificed. A lot of you have paid a price. Salvation is free, but being a disciple of Jesus will cost you everything. People sometimes misunderstand that. and We tend to not share the side of the gospel about sacrifice and taking up our cross and being a follower of Jesus. And I believe that you're going to see a, an incredible shift. And to see a shift and discover your place in the body of Christ is very important. Also to have a passion for the lost. But I just felt in this session that I was supposed to share on being a sacrificial leader. Leadership demands sacrifice. Often now we have empowered people who don't want to sacrifice and want others to sacrifice and want to live off their sacrifice. In the corporate world, in the kingdom, people that are followers of Jesus. And uh, one of the reasons I encourage people to travel when you see some of the great leaders of the kingdom and some of the nations of the earth and the sacrifices they've been through and the price they've paid to be followers of Jesus. Uh, my son sent me a video I've been kind of watching in between. Hopefully I'll get through the whole thing before I go home. So about almost two hours of the, the move of the Holy Spirit in Iran. And it's called the Sheep Among the Wolves. And they say that there's actually whole areas where mosques have been emptied. And followers of Jesus are willing to sacrifice their lives. I've met some of the Iranian believers in Turkey. I've been there a number of times. And when you when you hear their heart and you realize, you know, they're going back to a city knowing that they could be had their have their head cut off. And they're, they say that we're willing to go back. Our lives are Christ. Our lives are no longer our own. If we die when they walk out the door, they say, sweetheart, you might not ever see me again. I'll see you in heaven. And see, we know very little of that in North America. And that's why I encourage the people in the church to go to nations where people are paying sacrifices. My first trip to Indonesia, when I heard the cries of, I was there on the day when they made all the sacrifices and there's animals all over the whole city. I was in Bandung and heard the cries of the, the Muslim cries and the, you know, all, all the people, you know, sacrificing an animal in the streets and you know I heard those cries it just it just stirs something in me to say I want people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ I want to I want to reach lost people and I want to I think there's a call in the church to get back to making disciples and going into all the world and preaching the gospel again because we've, we've been very content to have our own meetings for ourselves rather than to say how can we reach people that don't know Jesus how can we reach our community how can we uh, be people that will be sacrificial leaders and it's, uh, I think, very important. So we're going to pray, and I'm going to, I don't know how long I'm going to go. I might not go too long. And then we're, I think we should dialogue a little bit. Is that all right? I, found, I find out I learn a lot more sometimes dialoguing with, with people than I do with just one person speaking at somebody. There's nothing wrong with others. Preaching and teaching is very needed. But there's, there's some, another dynamic that happens. Like when you sat down at the table late, there's another dynamic that happens that doesn't happen in this meeting. And I learned in my education process that I learned probably as much maybe even a little more from from my cohort, which was people like me in the class and some of my elders that we had lectures, but I learned more in the small groups when we, when we kind of unpacked, okay, what was said, what am I going to do with that? How, how can I process this in my own life? How, how am I going to live this out? Because I think in the American church or North American church, we often hear message, oh, that's good, praise God, yeah, we need that. And then we walk out and we just keep doing the same thing. We don't stop and say, what's my response or what, what's God calling me to adjust? What do I need to do? That's one of the reasons why I think discipleship and mentoring and, and sitting down with someone and say, how are you doing with this in your life? You know, they talked about giving. How, how, how are you doing in your giving? What's going on in your life? Well, you know, yeah, praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You know, 
and then they walk out and just live the same thing and have the same problems. So I'm going to talk about a subject. I feel like that many of you have gone through many hurts. You've gone through many struggles. You've gone through a lot of rejections. You've gone through a lot of humiliations. That's my sense. And why I felt the Lord laid it on my heart. But God wants you to know that the price that you paid is worth what's going to happen in Nova Scotia. The sacrifices you made are going to make a difference. Uh, some of us older people, I'll be 66 a week from Friday, uh, we realized there was times that we wondered, you know, is, is it worth all this? I think all of us at some time or another, when we've gone through trouble, I remember when a young man in our church uh, touched a boy inappropriately in the church, and all of a sudden I was on all the major news stations across the Northwest. They all showed up at the church and wanted to know what I had to say, and you know, this is what happened. It's in the news, and, you know, a lot of people said your church is going down the tube, and, you know, we thought you were a prophetic church. Why didn't you know this was happening? And, you know, all the things that go along that, you, you know, you'd hope. But I remember the network that I had the, 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 the week after it broke. We had a meeting, and there was about 60 leaders from around the area. I'll never forget, one of the men came and said, hey, I want everybody to come together around Pastor Dan. He goes, this isn't his problem. This is our problem. And we're going to fight the devil together, and we're going to drive him out of this area. You know, the thing that should have destroyed our church actually catapulted our church forward because we dealt with the problem. And, um, you know, how do you answer the newscast? And I put you on the evening news and say, yeah, we heard that one of your your children's pastors touched a boy inappropriately. What 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 do you have to say about that? Not the reason you really want to be on the news. When I went to my workout place, a man that I'd helped get delivered and was on steroids and was Mr. Atlas and Universe. And he's going, hey, Pastor, I saw you on TV last night. Ha, ha, ha. I'm thinking, oh, that's great. The guy I helped out of drugs and prayed for, he's out telling everybody in the whole place, did you see him on TV last night? Some, some guy, he's broadcasting it around, and you're going, oh, Lord, I didn't know I signed up for this. But you know what? Every time that price was paid and I was brought to a place of humility, I was brought to a place of you know, Jesus, I, I'm still depending on you. And I want to encourage you that some of you that have gone through very hard times are going to enter into a season where you're going to see why you went through that hard time. You're going to see how God's going to use that thing in your life to catapult you into releasing others that have been broken and rejected, people that have been hurt by the church, people that have had all kinds of problems and issues are going to come back and you're going to be able to help them. And I think it's going to be very significant if we were going to see ministry to the body of Christ. Some of your ministry is going to be to see people come back into the church family, into the church life, not only unsaved people, but people that have known him and walked away from him. They said if all the backsliders came back to church, not even half of them would fit into all the church buildings that are empty and are, that are they're there. They wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't house. And I believe God's going to bring some many prodigals back as we pray as we see God move. So, Father, I pray as we look at how to be a sacrificial leader that you would, Lord, show us how important it is, the cost, to be your follower and to be your leader. Lord, in a world that doesn't preach much about a cost, I thank you that you you often called your disciples to, to the cost when, when you looked at them and said, do you want to go away also? Peter was really spot on that day. He said, Lord, who, who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's times that you call us to commitment, Lord, and hard times and difficult times. And we thank you that the fruit of going through those trials and tests, we become more Christ-like. And we become more able to carry your presence and carry your glory. And it says when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, that there's the spirit of glory and of Christ that rests upon us. And there's a special anointing of the spirit of your glory and your power that comes on us when we're persecuted. 
Even when it was when Stephen was being stoned, it said that the glory of the Lord was on him and his face shone like an angel. That spirit of glory and of Christ was resting on him. And he was able to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what to do. And I thank you that there's going to be such a massive healing across Nova Scotia for people that have been hurt and wounded. There's going to be a healing released over the body of Christ that it can become fully functioning, that it can be fully released into all that you have for it. So, Lord, I pray you'd guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying the leadership of Jesus, I began to come across many passages about how important it is to realize that there's a, there's a price to pay to follow him. In the, in the modern church, we don't hear a lot about it. When I've met some of my brothers and some of my heroes, and you know, you, you, you wonder what it would be like to be in their place. You, know, you thought you had a hard time because somebody made fun of you, or, and then you realize this person was threatened with their life at gunpoint, or uh, they kidnapped their child and said they'd never see their child again for their faith in Christ. It, it takes it to a whole new level of what persecution is or people that have lost loved ones by martyrdom. It, it helps you to realize that the kingdom is way bigger than just what's happening in our neighborhood or how we're working and doing with things. So we have to be willing to sacrifice. It's part of leadership. It's an important part of leadership. I love Matthew 16:24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So denying ourselves and taking up our cross is part of being a follower and disciple of Jesus. Often my son, uh, who's now the senior pastor, has said to the congregation, you know, my dad and a lot of the people that are older in this church paid a price for us to have what we have. I remember a great church consultant, um, Samuel Chand, he tells a story of he went into an older church to take over as the pastor and he was walking around, and they were talking about the building. He said, man, we need a new building. He goes, look at this building. It was terribly built. And man, the foundation, there's a gap here. And, and I, don't, I don't know who did this job, but it was awful. He's talked to a couple of the elders of the church. This, this, this place, like, stinks. It's, you know, really bad. And I don't remember exact words he used. And, and all of a sudden, it got really quiet. And, the, and the, the two elders said, well, actually, we built this building. He goes, this is all we had, and we didn't really know what we were doing, but it's worked for all these years. And he said he wished there had been a hole that could have opened up that he would just drop down into the basement and could run away and hide. And he realized that was really a stupid thing to say. And they started to tell the stories, and they said, oh, pastor, over, over, over here, this is where my son, when he was backslidden, right at, right at this spot on this floor right here, this is where he gave his heart to Christ. And he said, yeah, I remember, you know, the, the lady that's the, the worship leader, she was over here, and she got delivered of demons right over here. And I don't remember the exact stories, but they started to tell all these stories. And God spoke to him and said, don't ever forget the foundation that was laid or the sacrifices that people made. Don't ever forget. And so he got an idea. He, he felt so bad. He, you know, he had to repent. He asked them, to, but he still felt bad after the whole thing. And, and he came to the church, and he said, I'm going to do a series of If These Walls Could Speak. He said, we're going to build a new church, but we're going, to, we're going to leave all these walls just as they are, and we're going to build around the walls. 
And I want you to write the stories on the walls of the things that happen. And week by week, different people are going to come and tell their stories of what happened in this church over all the years. And there was a healing that took place. So it's really important we realize a lot of people have sacrificed for us to be here. And the more we lose our life for his sake, the more we find life. I'm amazed how many people don't get it. I have people ask me all the time, well, so like you're not expecting people to do this and do that and like this group does? And I said, no, I'm just there to serve people. It's a lot easier that way. There's no strings attached. Yeah, but, you know, they said you got to do this. And I said, yeah, they, they, can do, they can do whatever they want. I don't, I don't do that. I don't ask to go anywhere. I don't send out letters or cards and say, I'd like to come and speak at your church or your nation. I said, God, if you don't want my doors, I don't want to go. And I find the more I lose my life for his sake, the more he opens doors. And see, we have to get back to the principle of, you know what, he's, he's the Lord of our lives. And that, you know what, it's very important that we count the cost. I love what Bonhoeffer said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Pretty powerful statement. I think we've had a lot of converts. Someone coined the phrase, you know, converts make to heaven, disciples make history. And we're, capable, we're able to be disciples, followers of Christ. He says this to uh, quoting about Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship demands one's willingness to leave all things behind and follow Jesus wherever he leads. Cheap grace serves as discipleship's bitterest foe, which true discipleship must loathe. Cheap grace is our enemy because it makes a life of transformation optional. Bonhoeffer said we must never make cheap what was costly to God. No tepid responses to what Christ cost Christ everything. Our response should be discipleship. Our lives are all. See, any cost we pay to be his disciple is worth the reward to knowing we're doing it out of love for him and the sacrifice that he made. That the lamb would receive the reward that's worthy of his work and his, his heart. It's amazing sometimes when you meet some of these people. Um, Dr. David Wong from China, I heard him tell the story where he went into Inner Mongolia and as he was preaching the gospel... They took him to an underground church that was literally underground. They took him out to this area in Mongolia, and there was grass. They pulled the grass back, and there was boards, and they pulled the boards off. They went underground, and then they put the boards back on, and somebody would put the grass back on top so they didn't even know they were underground. And they asked him to preach, so he preached for one hour. And, you know, he said, I just preached my, and they said, well, preach more. So he preached the second hour, and he preached the third hour. He preached the fourth hour. He preached the fifth hour. And finally, after six hours, he said, look, I, I just can't preach anymore. I'm exhausted. And so then he told the interpreter to take over, and all of a sudden they started singing. And one by one they would stand, and they started singing like this. And he didn't know what they were singing, so he asked the interpreter, what are they singing? He said, they're singing, we won't listen to the sermon. He goes, this is crazy. He said, I've been preaching for six. They keep asking me to preach. I preached for six hours. Now they're all standing one by one singing, we will not listen to the sermon. We will not listen to the sermon. And then he noticed the words changed. It was the second verse. He said, what are they saying now? He said, they're saying, we will live the sermon. We will live the sermon. We will live the sermon. And it's really important to realize that we're not, you know, that we're going to have to pay a price. You're going to have to pay a price to see revival. And you're going to have to pay a price of, you know, spending time in the Lord's presence, of coming together with people that maybe you haven't come together with before. There's a price to pay, but I'll tell you, whatever the price is, it's really worth the value of what's going to happen. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but, you know, the value that you're going to receive for giving up all to follow him, whenever you lose your life for his sake, guess what? You find life. 
It's amazing how it works. So let's look. I want to just make it simple. I like to make things simple. You can write C-O-S-T, cost. What's the cost? What's the cost to be a follower of Jesus? What's the cost to be a leader in what God wants to do in Nova Scotia? You say, yeah, salvation's free. We receive God's grace. We receive his love. But there's a lot of scriptures that we tend to leave out nowadays in our modern churches that said basically you have to take, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? C stands for cost. God's ultimate desire is for us to become Christ-like. It says in Romans 8:28, all things work together for good to those who are called by God, who are called according to his purpose, right? It's amazing what he does. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. I've heard the story many times that in the old days that a refiner would refine silver, and the way they would refine it is they would fire it seven times. And the only way that the refiner knew that it was purified is he'd see the reflection of his face in the crucible. So often we're going through fires because the Father and Jesus are desiring to see the reflection of Jesus in our life as we go through the fires. Can I tell you that the best times in my life is when I've gone through the fires? And on the other side of the fire, there's been a refining process that prepares me for what God wants to do in my life. It wasn't fun to go through that. It was not only not fun to be on the television and have the children's pastor touch a boy inappropriately and find out later that there was four other boys involved, and it was a a terrible natural experience. I called the elders together, and I said, people in our own church are going to be mad at us. All kinds of things are going to happen in the community. I said, if ever there was a time for us to be strong, we need to love the people in the church. Many of them will turn on us. Many of them will say things about us, but we have have one responsibility, and that's to love them, to pray for them, to bless them. In the middle of that, We had a major government shift in our church because I was studying the scriptures more and I was going to graduate school and I realized that I felt our whole governmental structure in our church, we modeled after the church I came out of, that I I planted the church and deacons and elders all worked together and I studied the Bibles and I thought, it's really not scriptural for deacons and elders to all have the same governmental authority and the deacons were in charge of the money and a bunch of things happened. So I went through a two-year process of telling them what I believed was a scriptural church, was an apostolic model where apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they all agreed, shook their heads yes, and said, we went through teaching. I had Presbyterian people and Baptists and Pentecostal and Foursquare and Christian church people that were my teachers. They all said, yeah, I, I believe you should do this. It's in your heart, it's your vision. And they all agreed, and as soon as I did it, they decided that it was all wrong. After we dialogued for two years that we were going to do it, and one week they all decided that they were going to quit the church, five of the deacons. And they decided to do that while I was in India on a mission trip, which was really fun to get a phone call. And then I found out that one of the elders had been privately meeting with them without the other elders knowing, and they had formed this little covenant and pact that they were going to always stay together and always work together. and always. They started to say things to me like, Pastor, it's almost like you expect us to pray or something. I was going, what? And they were saying, well, and why do we have to raise our hands in church? And, you know, we've got 400 people here. We, we don't want any more people. And why, why do you want the church to grow? And why do you have to go to other nations? Why, why do you travel? You're the pastor. You should just be here and be the pastor. Wasn't that fun? 
my friend Dr. Thomas, I was in India, and this is the way Dr. Thomas is. I, I came to the dinner table that night, and he said, after, after dinner, we're going to have a celebration. I've got a cake for Pastor Hammer. I go, Matthew, it's not my birthday. And he goes, I know. We're going to have a celebration tonight. Wait till after dinner. Got all these other pastors from over, and he's saying, Happy breakthrough to you. Happy breakthrough to you. Happy breakthrough. God bless you. He said, I want to make an announcement. All of the people that have been keeping Pastor Hammer and the church from going to the next level left the church. Let's all praise the Lord. He was absolutely right. Because they didn't have my heart. They didn't have my vision. They didn't put what, what God had put in my heart. It was the best thing that ever happened to the church in 2001. From that day on, this church shifted. They're still, most of them still my friends. My wife and I went to all their houses, laid hands on them, blessed them, prayed for them. But it wasn't fun that next Sunday getting up when I got back saying, oh, by the way, five of the deacons resigned this week. Praise the Lord. Um, we're going to pray for them. <laughs> it, it was an awkward moment. Of course, then you have people saying, well, why did they resign? And I just said, well, from my perspective, I'll just say it real simply. They, you can talk to them. They might have a different perspective. They just are not in agreement with the vision that we have as elders and leaders of the church. And we shifted the whole church government. We went to an elder-led church. We have seven elders. We only move forward if the seven elders are in agreement. If they're not, we don't have a five-to-two vote. We don't have a four-to-three vote. If we're not in agreement, it doesn't seem good to us. In the Holy Spirit, we don't move forward. I've had people tell me that wouldn't work, and I said, well, it's actually the biblical model. It's now worked for 18 years. We've had no meetings after the meetings. People speak their hearts and minds. Sometimes they've told me, no, pastor, we don't think you're supposed to go there. If they say that, I don't go. They know I'm here. I asked them if I had permission to go here. I submit myself to the other elders. It's worked. The deacons now are deacons, and they do the work of deacons, and they take care of the church and the physical needs and different things that they're called to do. And we've commissioned apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I had people tell me it wouldn't work. Their churches have closed. And I know there's many models you can do in church. It was just what God had led us to do. I'm not against pastors or churches, or I'm not telling everybody how to run their church, but there was a price to pay. But it shifted something. There's usually a price to pay for something to shift. And some of you have paid a price. Some of you had people. My friend in the Philippines, Southern Baptist, for 35 years, his denomination rejected him. For 35 years, they said, you're wrong. They brought him before an excommunication tribunal and said, we're going to execute, excommunicate you because you're, you're Pentecostal. You speak in tongues. We don't believe in that. They said, do you have anything to say before we make the final vote of execution or, I guess, excommunication? <laughs> Slip there, sorry. And he said, yes. He said, if you can show me from the scriptures anything that I'm doing that's unscriptural, I will listen to you, but I don't think you will. And so the head of, you know, looked at all the charges and thought of the scriptures. And he said, well, you're really not doing anything that's not in the scriptures, so I guess maybe we shouldn't excommunicate you. Now, after 35 years, those same people that wanted to excommunicate have rejected him are now inviting him to lead their group. But he had to pay a price. Because you're really not battling the people. You're, you're displacing forces and powers of darkness that have ruled over Nova Scotia. You're battling forces. You're not fighting people. You're fighting principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. And you're going to displace those things. And there'll be, there'll be a price. And often I, I've thanked my son. He's got up and he's with tears. He said, you know, my dad used to do stuff and people said things and did things to him. And 
humiliated and mocked him. He said, you just love them. And said, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm called to do. See, when you know your mission and you know God's called you to do it, it doesn't matter what the cost is. You're doing it unto him. Because when you pay a price and a cost, it's amazing what God does. And it's worth the value. And I find that a leader has to, you know, have to, has to give up to go up. Sometimes you have to give up and just surrender. Say, Lord, I don't understand, but you called me to do this. And I'm not quitting. I have a, a holy stubbornness, I call it. I said, God called me to do it. I'm going to stay here until it happens. God called me here, and I'm going to believe that God's going to show up and do what he promised me to do. I don't see anything in the natural right now, but it's going to happen. So we need to count the cost. It's a lifetime commitment. Sacrifice is a constant leadership. It's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time. Like I remember once God was dealing with an issue in my life and finally had a breakthrough, and I said, I said, Lord, can't you just like kill my flesh? Can't I just like go to a spiritual electric chair, electric chair and get, you know, zapped or and he goes, No, you're gonna die daily. You're gonna put things to death on a regular it's on see sacrifice wasn't a one time commitment that we made that I made August eleventh, nineteenth. I, I have to constantly commit myself to say this is the commitment I made. I stand under that commitment. It's hard right now, but I made a commitment, I'm not turning back. There's always a cost involved in moving forward. As we move forward in the sacrifice for the cause of Christ, the reward is worth the cost. It's incredible, isn't it? We need to be disciplined. We need to be followers of Jesus. Disciple means a disciplined one. It takes discipline to to be a follower of Jesus. It takes discipline to be in his presence, to be in his word, to spend time with him, to do what he's called us to do. I love what one man said, as a leader, press on to receive and achieve to fulfill what Jesus Christ has destined for you. It will not just happen. There must be a pressing on in the spirit to fulfill all that Christ has for you. It takes discipline. Discipline is what gets you up in the morning when our bodies say, I need sleep. Discipline keeps us fasting when our stomachs cry for food. Discipline keeps our thoughts and emotions on track when circumstances around us would dictate otherwise. Remember when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he said, I, he said, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. So we have to keep ourselves in right relationship and, you know, with people and with God, and we make, need to make sure that we don't allow temptation to overcome us or overtake us. I remember I started praying many years ago because I read the Lord's Prayer. Every day I pray, Lord, deliver me from evil and temptation. And someone heard me praying at the altar. They go, why do you pray that? I said, because Jesus told me to. They said, why do you pray that? I said, because Jesus told me to. Well, do you think that delivers you from temptation and evil? I said, "Uh, duh. Yeah, I think so. That's why I pray it. Because I know I can be led into temptation and evil. So I pray that God will deliver me from temptation and evil. And he has many, many times. And part of being a sacrificial leader is we get the privilege of loving people that probably won't love us back. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad when you signed up? Did they tell you that as a leader? Oh, you've got a great destiny. You've got. Isn't it amazing how, how many prophecies are, oh, God's got a destiny, and, you're, and that's truth, but they don't tell you the cost. They don't tell you the price. They don't tell you what the successful people paid to get where they were. One man studied all the graduating speeches a few years of all the colleges and all the Bible colleges, all the big universities, and they all said that you can have your dream. You can, you can go for your dream. Just go for your dream. You can have your dreams. And he said not one speech told them the cost it would take them to fulfill their dreams. And that's tragic. And so we've developed an entitlement mentality. 
oh, God, God has to give me this. And, you know, God doesn't have to give us anything. He's God. See, the problem with the, the problem in the, in the story with the prodigal son and the older brother is the older brother thought he deserved something. I've been serving you all these years. I know none of you have ever done this. But I've been serving you all these years. This is what I get. We've all been there, haven't we? We actually come to the place sometimes where we think we should. I'm glad we don't get what we deserve. <laughs> we get what Jesus deserves. And we have the honor and privilege of laying down our lives. But sometimes we get to a place spiritually where we think, oh, I served him all these years. And I, and I know God blesses us for about here in my heart. See, the prodigal son thought God owed him something. And we can get to the place where we think, you know what, I'm owed something because, you know what, we're, we're favored sons and when we've done everything he's told us to do, we're still unprofitable servants. And it's a, it's, it's a paradox. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. When I've done everything he's told me to do, I'm still an unprofitable servant. But I am his favored son. And we have to live with those tensions. There's a lot of tensions in the kingdom that keep us in a good place depending on him. Matthew 5, 43 and 48, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, do you love your enemies? Bless those who curse you. <laughs> Isn't that fun? We, we all pray that every day. God, I want to bless all those that curse me today. And I want to just love my enemies today. Bring them on, Lord. No, we don't pray that, do we? Do good for those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward of you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is imperfect. Is perfect. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, And if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Disciple, and whoever does not hear this, bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, including to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he is enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begins to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down and first consider whether he with 10,000 can go out to meet him who comes with 20,000? Or else what other is still a great way off? He sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are the words of Jesus. Very little preaching done on this anymore. But it's an important part of being a leader. You're leaders here. We're all leaders. And we have to count the cost. But oh, when you realize the value of knowing him, when you realize what he's done for you and what he's done for me, it's a very little cost. It's a very little cost compared to what he's done for us. And so we get to love people that don't love us. And when we had our uh, graduation service, my wife and I, and we installed my son, my pastor, my first pastor came to the service. He's in his 80s now. He had a moral failure in his life, and God's restored him. It was an honor to have him lay hands on me. And his wife, they've been mentors and incredible people in our lives. He's a Welshman, incredible preacher. Um, they prayed for us and blessed us. And you know, my son and they honored us and they had our children come up and share something. And 
that different people, Dr. List was there, and I mean, my wife and I just wept. Because you realize what you've poured your life out for. And we looked around and saw the building full and people in the overflow and people we hadn't seen for years coming back to say thank you that you paid a price. I'll never forget when you came and prayed for me. I'll never forget when you spent time at my house all night when I was sick. I'll never forget the time you stood for my daughter when she ran away from home. I'll tell you the value of pleasing him and seeing the impact that you will have in people's life is worth the cost. It's so valuable. In fact, my wife and I sat there and wept. Asked to stand up. I didn't want to stand up because that was a holy moment. Remember when Dr. List walked up to me after the service and he was crying. He said, do you see how much the people love you? And many of those people at many times in my life, they said bad things about me and they hated me. But when my children stood up, they said, you know, one thing about my mom and dad over the years is they've always even loved the people that talked about them. And in our home, we didn't hear them speak bad, but we, we saw them pray for people that we knew had said bad things about our mom and dad. And they said to the whole church, our mom and dad are the same people at home as they are in the church. They don't have a preacher face or a Mrs. Pastor face. They live the way they live everywhere they go. And I'll tell you, when your own children say that, it's worth all the sacrifices. It's worth all the times that we left them. It's worth all the times when I realized I would have rather been with my family than in a different nation, sleeping on cots and being bit, bit by bed bugs or having to lock myself into a cell in Uganda so I didn't get robbed. <laughs> the worst part, you got to have some fun along the way too. <laughs> it was actually, a, they, you had to lock yourself in your own room and it was like a prison bar cell because they didn't want people to break in. <laughs> and so you had to hold the lock and reach outside in the middle of the night and unlock the lock and lock it back up to go up to the bathroom. And I did it about two or three times in the night and I was thinking of my late 50s and I thought, Man, I got to walk all the way up there and go to the bathroom. I'm getting tired of doing this. And I thought, man, I got this empty water bottle. It was a really good plan until I realized I had to go more than the water bottle. So here I. <laughs> you ever wonder what God does in these moments? He must have, all the angels must laugh. So I'm realizing I still got to go. And I, I've got to reach out <laughs> with one hand and unlock the door. With a, with a lock that's a padlock that's all the way around. You can't see the lock. It took me like 15 minutes to get the lock out. And I think, how am I going to walk out up, the, up to the bathroom thing holding myself? <laughs> I'm going, Lord, help help nobody see but you and the angels. And I'm, I'm running. That's the fastest run up to the bathroom I've ever done in my life. you got to laugh sometimes. And I've been in situations and bathrooms and things that you're thinking, you would never even ask somebody to do some of this stuff. My wife got bit by red ants while she was going to the bathroom in the Ukraine out in the middle of the bushes and there was like ants all over the ground they were biting her and she was screaming I didn't know what happened and we were in Russia preaching and they drove us out this town and we'd come out of Poland gone into Russia and we're sitting there and we're looking at each other and we had to go to the bathroom really bad and the Russian pastor didn't speak English hardly at all and the word in Polish for toilet was toilata so I'm going and we're looking all around the house and there's no bathroom in the house we're thinking what, what did they do there's no bathroom and we're looking everywhere, you know, you're going in closets and you're, you're kind of trying, because they don't know what we're doing, is you're trying to look, like, not look like you're casing out their house or something. And I'm going, toilada? 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 And they're going, toilada? 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 This goes on for like 40, I mean, we're almost ready to wet our pants. 
And finally he goes, oh, toilet. I mean, I was, I was sitting down like this. I was pulling toilet paper. I didn't know if they had any. And, and sometimes you think it must just be fun. And you think you wouldn't do this for anybody else but Jesus. I mean, we could tell you stories of stuff that it probably make your hair stand on the end of the. But you know what? Why do we do it? Because we love Jesus and we love people. And we laugh, but you got to have some fun. you got to laugh at those things. I can tell somebody who's been on the mission field before. It's amazing, isn't it? So part of the cost is giving your life away. You know what I found out? When you lay down your life for others, they'll lay down their life for you. No greater love does a man have than he will lay down his life for his friends. So I want to encourage you. It's worth the cost. It's worth the see. You count the cost, and I'll tell you the cost is worth it because of the value. Oh, you need to be open. You need to have an openness. We need to be open to God if we're going to be sacrificial leaders. Trust in him at all times and pour out your heart before him. God is your refuge. You know what? The good shepherd is your shepherd. And as a leader, you have to pour out your heart to God, and the more you pour out your heart to God, it's all right to tell him how you feel. It's all right to tell him what you're frustrated. He doesn't get angry at you. He doesn't get mad. He wants you to open your heart to him. And if we don't open our heart to God, you know what I find out? We close our hearts. Paul prayed that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be made conform to his death. See, fellowship means joint participation. We get to have joint participation with his sufferings. One time, this lady attacked me when I first started the ministry as an associate pastor, a minister of evangelism, and she came and just read me a riot act. I was teaching a spirit of legalism and bondage, and I tried to talk to her, and she wouldn't talk and said, you know, you've got all kinds of problems you shouldn't be teaching, and kind of screamed at me and stuff. And I went back in my office and I did the dignified thing. I started crying like a little baby, and I said, God, this is my first Bible study I've ever taught in my life. And they think I teach in a spirit of legalism and bondage. I was having this little pity party, crying and telling God, oh, God, do you see what she did? And I don't know if you ever do stuff like that, but I do. And I was just sitting there doing that. And, and the Lord spoke to me and said, he didn't come to my pity party. He said, what do you pray every morning? I said, Lord, that lady, just she was evil. I mean, she just said these terrible things. And there was one lady that wanted to punch her after she said it, she told me. And he asked me three times, what do you pray every morning? And finally I said, I pray that I might know you in the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings. I went on to quote the verse, and he said, fellowship of my sufferings. And I go, well, that's not what I meant when I prayed that prayer. <laughs> I wanted to know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your... I, didn't, I wasn't praying for the fellowship. I was praying for the power. And then I said, and when did they... I started... You know, have you ever tried to open your mouth, and before you get the question out, God's already given you the answer? I think that's what heaven's going to be like. And I said... Lord, when did they say they called me Beelzebub, the prince of the demons? And I go, oh. I said, boy, you were the Lord. You were sinless. I mean, I, I know I could be wrong and mess up, but what must that have been like for Jesus to be called by people the prince of the demons? He said, that's part of the fellowship of my sufferings. I said, oh, well, it still hurts. What do you do? He said, do what I did. I committed unto him who judged righteously and opened up my mouth. He said, keep your mouth shut. I was like, oh. And then he said something I never forgot. He said, Dan, to the degree you know the fellowship of my sufferings, will you know the power of my resurrection. And when you fellowship with my sufferings, there's a release of power in your life that comes no other way. Not that we don't know his power, but we know it in a whole new dimension. 
It really changed my life that day. And then to be open to others. See, we can close our hearts as leaders. We can get hurt. And we can we can go through emotions and we can act like, you know, we're fine and happy. And, hey, let's just everybody praise the Lord. No, come on. Is everybody happy? And we can get up front and then we can go home and cry at night. Because we shut our heart down. We, we close our spirit. Paul said to the Corinthians, you know what? Our hearts enlarge towards you, but you've not opened your hearts to us. It's really hard to win a brother that's been offended or a sister because they close their hearts. And see, if we're going to be we're going to be leaders, we count the cost. We not only need to be open to God, we need to be open to other people. We need to try and live an offenseless life. I'll never forget. You know how God sneaks up on you. I got a phone call from uh, James Gall's um, assistant. He said, "This is a strange request," but he said, "Michael Ann just died." about three or four months ago, and James said to call you, and he said he's only been to your church once, but he felt so at home, he wondered if he could come and speak at your church. He said, yeah, he can come and speak. So that's cool. I said, you know, God, you're bringing Jim Gall here. He lost his wife, Michael Ann. He's fought for her all, these, all this time, and that's cool. You've, you're probably bringing him just to get healed, and that's awesome. So I'm sitting in the front row, and he gets up to speak, and He's talking about, you know, how you learn to learn to discern good and evil through, this, through your senses. And, and it, that can only happen if your heart's not closed. And he told the story of Michael Ann, his wife. I don't know if many of you know the story, but she died and she lost many of her organs and went through cancers and he battled for her. And he said, at the worst moment of my life, and he's crying. I mean, we're all crying. And the worst moment of my life, she's, she's urinated on herself. She has feces. Her breath's bad. They can't help her. She's, she's, she's in a coma. They say she's going to die. He goes, and I was complaining to God. I just said, God, I don't understand this. You know, I fought. I've served. I don't understand. She's not my wife. I don't, she's not, it's like she's not even my wife anymore. I don't even understand why she, you know, she's going to die. I don't know what's going on. I've battled and contended. And he said, God, do you need to do something to, for me? And he said the, and he said the, the, the ceiling opened up, and the, and the presence of God just came into, the, into his room. It was interesting because before I got up to pray, I walked up to the pulpit and the Lord spoke to me and said, he said, I want you to tell James that he's a genius and I'm going to bless him. I didn't know he was actually a certified creative genius. He's like in a five percentile. I didn't know that. And then I was, I had closed my eyes and I saw these clouds over James when I got ready to pray and the clouds formed these letters and it said conquered by love. I was like, well, that's, I said, Lord, we've all been conquered by love. That's. I, am I supposed to tell him that? Doesn't, I mean, Lord, you conquered all of us by love. Everybody, that's like that's not like a prophetic word. And, and I said, and Lord said, tell him. I said, Lord, I, I, I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, thank you for James, and he's a creative genius. Da da da. And I said, and and I thank you that he's been. You told me, and I said, I've seen a cloud, cloud, clouds, and it was over you, James. And God says you've been conquered by love. So I had said that before this encounter. I needed to back up a little bit to kind of bring you up to the story. And so he starts to say, and I, I picked her up when the, when the presence of God. I, I had so much love in my heart for my wife. She's in a coma. He said she came back too for just the next two hours. She died right after that. He said, I picked her up in my arms. She has feces, urine. She stinks. And I picked her up and I danced with her for two hours. And we had the most intimate time in our whole marriage. And I was dancing around the house singing, we could have danced all night. We could have danced all night and still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings. And she died in his arms. And he was crying and we were crying. I mean, it was one of those just, 
all tied into the message he was preaching. And I was saying, Lord, this is so cool. You brought James here just for him to get healed. This is so awesome. And then he started talking about, but sometimes people close their hearts. There might be people here. I said, Lord, yeah, there's all my friends in here. You know, they've closed their hearts, and I've watched it. You brought, you're not only going to heal him, you're going to heal all them. It's so cool. This is awesome. My friends are going to get healed from their hearts. I've, I've seen them in church, and they've had something happen, and they just, they're just not like they used to be. And you know, they brought James here to be healed, but you brought him. And, and I was sitting there, I'm going, God, I'm so great to hear this message was just for them. And then he's winding down the message, and he walks off the platform, I don't know if you ever heard him speak, but he walks down, he gets right in my face, and he goes, you were right, Pastor Dan. I was conquered by love. And right then, it was like a lightning bolt from heaven came, and I heard a voice say, no, I brought him here for you because you've closed your heart to people from all the wounds you've received. And you can observe in other people, but your heart is broken, and I brought him here to heal you. And I did a face plant. Onto the cement, on the cement. Well, there's a carpet, but it's pretty. Not a lot of pad under it. You don't spend too much when you first start a church on pad under carpet. And I had an hour and a half encounter with God, where He opened my heart to people again. Never been the same since. And I realized how dangerous it is when you count the cost. That the the thing you have to guard against is closing your heart to people. Because you know it's it's easy to close our hearts to people. So that's the O. Be open to God and be open to people. I want to close real fast, so I'll do the S and T real quick because I want to give some time for some answers for 15 minutes. S stands for suffering. You're going to suffer. It says in Romans 8, 17, If children are then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, not for him, with him, that we may also be glorified together. So I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are those for the spirit of glory of Christ rests upon you. On his part he's blasphemed, and on your part he's glorified. There's a special glory that rests on those that go through suffering. It's amazing what happens. I went through a hard time and went through some suffering, and I began to read that verse in the scriptures that says that... Um, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for you a far more eternal, exceeding weight of glory in Second Corinthians 4. I was going through a very difficult time. And the Lord began to speak to me, and he said, this is not actually working against you, Dan. It's working for you. So I made up a little song that I sing to myself from time to time. I sing it to my circumstances. You're working for me, not against me. You're working for my good. I say you're working for me, not against me. You're working for my good. You're working for me, not against me. You're working for my good. Now you realize what Paul went through? I don't know if he, I don't know how he called it light affliction. But those things that we go through that cause us to surrender more to Christ are actually working for us. I taught it in Cameroon. In the Bible school, I taught them my song, and they said, teach us that worship song. I go, I don't know what worship song. Yeah, you sang it yesterday. They thought it was a worship song. Because you know what? Things that appear to be working against you are literally working for you a far more eternal and exceeding weight of glory. And God's designed them, and I began to realize problems were actually my friend. Trials were actually my friend. I began to sing to them and tell them that they're working for me, not against me. And I sang a little ditty. Matter of fact, other people have joined in the song and they do a little dance step with me in church sometimes. I was teaching in Cameroon in a Bible school and 
I was walking down the hill. It was their finals after I spoke in the chapel. And all of a sudden, all the lights went out, and I heard all the students singing, it's working for us. I said, that's not what I meant. You have to take your test. They thought the lights going out were going to free them from taking the final. And T stands for training. T stands for training. We still need to be lifelong learners. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still learning new things. I'm still studying. I'm still praying. I'm still finding out better practices and picking people's brains. And I'm, I'm learning to listen to what people are saying more and more. My biggest journey on servant leaders is I was a really good speaker or preacher. I loved to speak, and I realized I didn't listen very well. I realized you really can't be the lead, leader God wants you to be if you don't listen to him and listen to people. And when I started to listen to people, it was amazing what I learned. And I quit saying so much, and I got around people, and I listened to what they had to say, and it was amazing what I learned from listening to people. I said, I'm going to be a lifelong learner. I said, I want to be a a river. I don't want to be a pond. Because a lot of people get to a certain stage in life when you're really at the maximum place to pour out, and you start to just rely on your old stuff that you have, and you become a pond. You don't become a river. See, a river has something flowing in. It also has something flowing out. A pond stagnates. It only flows into it. So I encourage you that are a little bit older, you're in your most prime time of life to be used by God as a leader. And I'll tell you, any cost you pay, it's worth it all. And keep your heart open to God and open to people. Keep it open to people, because once you close your heart to people, that's one of our biggest problems. And I believe there's going to be some healing. So, Father, I pray as we take a few questions, just as I close in prayer, I pray during this tonight and also today tomorrow that you'd release healing to people that have been hurt, people that have been disappointed, or there'd be a wave of healing that would flow into people's hearts and spirits. Lord, where there's been disappointments, where there's been maybe a closed heart, that you'd begin to open their heart. Lord, I've tried to pour love into people who've closed their heart, and I've told them, you're like a coffee cup with a lid on. And people are trying to pour love into you, but because the lid's on, it doesn't matter how much love we pour in, because you've closed your heart, none of that love can get in. So I pray over this next uh, evening and tomorrow, anybody that's got a lid on their, their heart from hurts and wounds, that you'd begin to... You're just so gentle how you lift that lid off and you begin to pour in gently. You're such a gentle shepherd when you come to people that are hurt. You're so gentle. And and I realized, no, Dan, I brought James Gall for you. Yes, he got healed. And yes, your friends got healed. But most importantly, I brought him for you as the leader to get healed. And Lord, forgive us as leaders that sometimes we can say, yeah, so-and-so needed that. And yeah, that was a great message for them. And and oftentimes we, we, we don't realize that maybe the message was for us. So thank you that the message is for us and that we can count the cost and the price. And I thank you that this group of people is going to be willing to pay the price that it will cost to see revival in Nova Scotia. There was always some group that rose up and prayed and came together where there was a small remnant that started revivals that shook nations. And Lord, I pray you do that in Nova Scotia in Jesus' name. Amen. So I got about 10 minutes, I think. Is there any questions or thoughts about what we've been doing? Yes, Joanna? I was in uh, Belarusia. Oh, oh yeah, okay, that was funny. Well, then they opened the door and went like that. And I thought, oh, no, it's outside. I guess they just go outside. So we're just like going to go outside. So we walked out, and there was a moonlight. It's about midnight, 1 o'clock by the time we finally figured it out. There's like this big, there's like this big outhouse, kind of a little bit bigger than an outhouse, but smaller than a shed. 
And so I said, oh, it must be like an outhouse. So we went out there, and I said, why don't you go in first, dear? And we opened, so she was in there. And all of a sudden, there, there must have been an animal, like, in there. And it started making no. I didn't know what it was. And she's screaming, because it sounded like it was like a, I didn't even know what it was. But it was making all these, it wasn't like a pig, and it wasn't like a cow. And, but it, some animal started making noise, and it was right to her, and it was banging against the thing. And she's screaming, and I said, unlock the door. She, she says, well, it's not in here, but I don't know what it is. And she's screaming, and. So she gets done, and then I go to get in, and I realize when I sit down on the toilet that my knees are outside the door thing. So you can't shut the door if I sit down. She could do it, but I couldn't. And so I realize, well, there's a bar up there, so I, I'm hanging on the bar, shut the door, and I'm, I'm suspended in midair. And I start just laughing, and she goes, what's the matter? Are you laughing about the animal? I said, no, I just realized if my hand slip, I'm going all the way to the bottom of this thing. And she goes, did you see the walls? And I said, no. She goes, there's 111s all over the walls. I go, 111s? And I shined the flashlight around and said, 111, 111. There was all these. And I, I asked the guy, what, what is one? He said, oh, they, they don't have toilet paper. So they just use their three fingers. And when they're done, they wipe it on the walls. <laughs> it's a true story. Didn't mean to gross anybody out. but So our joke was, I hope we don't see any 111s in, in Belarusia anymore. We had an incredible time with the Ukrainian and Russian people and the Polish people. We love them. But you just got to laugh sometimes. It's just, you're sure the angels are laughing. Don't you think our angels must, like, talk to each other? Yours did what this week? You've seen what mine did. Uh, they must get, like, breaks or something. They probably talk about us like, you don't believe what my guy did. <laughs> don't you think? Does that help at all? Yeah, that was, yeah. I know you have been on the mission field, yeah. The worst one was one of my friends, his, his, his legs got stuck. And we were in Uganda, and there was a bat in there, so he's screaming. And there was a lockdown, and he, his leg locked up, and he was stuck. And he's screaming for me, and I'm trying to pull a stick over the top in pitch dark and knock the, pull the thing up, and I can't. He's screaming. And then I got him out, and he couldn't walk back. I was just, I mean, he's, there's nights you just sit and laugh for two or three hours because you go, God, how do you get us into these things? I mean... But it's part, it's part of the fun of the journey. I mean, it's, you got some stories to tell, right? Any other thoughts or questions about what we've been talking about? What, how's it affecting you? What about the cost? What's going to be the cost for you? How many of you already paid a cost? How many of you already paid a cost to be where you are? Somebody said, Pastor, you're like living in your dreams. I said, yeah, after 35 years of hell, yeah. Joseph Garlington said, you know, made the comment, he said, it's from glory to glory. They just don't tell you it's hell in the hallways. <laughs> it is. What are some of the costs some of you are going to have to pay? I'll tell you, it's worth it for what's going to happen in Nova Scotia. Think of the men and women that sacrificed their lives for us to have the Bible, for us to get saved, that poured out their lives. I had people that when I was a drug addict and alcoholic surrounded me and poured their, I called them, asked stupid questions at midnight, thought I was going to die, and they'd say, no, you're not going to die, Dan. You're just being, you know, the devil's just messing with you. And I apologized when I got mature enough to realize I must have drove them nuts because I had some things to work through, and I'd been delivered. I still had a whole mindset that had to be shifted. Any thoughts about what's going on so far? Are you just ready to go home? Are you tired? My Bible school students are real conversive, so I'm used to being talked back at. 
until she, Jen's been on the mission field. She's probably got some stories to tell herself. Any thoughts? Yes. What? Yes, true. Very true. When you realize the value, there's not much to... After you realize what Jesus did for us, anything else pales in comparison. And when you give it up, it's amazing what you receive. When you lay it down, it's, it's amazing what you have to pick back up. If you say, so do you miss preaching every week and you're not the senior pastor? How does that feel to be retired? Like, I'm not retired. I'm refired and repositioned. I'm still on the staff. I'm still doing the works of the kingdom. I'm not retired. Who wants to retire? It's way overrated. Thank God for people that get to retire that have to. It's, I'm not. I'm not trying to put him, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna die with my boots on. There was a hand back there. There, yes. Yeah, it's hard because you know we've grown up for years in a Western model of a church where the pastor was. They say, last I remember, I think it said there's like 39 things a pastor is expected to do now. No person can do that, no man or woman. And you don't find it as a biblical model. Matter of fact, pastor is only mentioned very rarely in the scriptures. The word pastor, appointment, or bishop, or there's not, apostles mentioned much more, prophet is, are the evangelists, pastors, and teachers are not mentioned as much as apostles and prophets. And God said in the church, first of all, apostles, secondarily prophets. There's, it's actually in the, the Greek language. It's first, second, third. There's, a, there's actually an order to it. And I found in any area, if you get out of God's order, you're going to have problems. And so because it's so ingrained in our culture, it's hard for people to. And then because most of the models they've seen is people dominating and controlling or prophesying to manipulate churches or apostolically saying, oh, yeah, I'll be your apostolic leader and you're going to now pay your tithes to me and you're going to do this and you're going to be under these five people and then you'll have to come to this meeting and do this thing and do that thing. And It's been a wrong model. It's really about functioning. It's really about empowering and equipping people and building people up. And so what we've been doing at churches, we've been building a model for people to see and many people said we never saw how it could be done until we saw your church in action. So we've commissioned apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I said it's, it's, it's not that different than a regular church other than you're releasing people to do what they were called to do. So very few people are just sitting in the church. They're empowered to do their ministry. And I've not, you know, I have a lot of people ask me to be a spiritual father. I never ask any of them. I've never asked anybody to be their spiritual father. I've never tried to manipulate anybody. When I go somewhere, I say I'm here to serve. So I'm here when I'm Pastor Bruce's guest and John's guest, and when he asks me to do something or not do something, I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm here to serve him. I'm not here to try and get you to join what I do. I'm not trying to make something happen. I'm not trying to manipulate people to do. I'm here to serve. And when you serve people and you serve their vision, guess what? God gives you your own vision. But there's just been so much manipulation and, you know, people saying, well, he's over these you know, he's got 97 million people in his network, and he's like up here. And, and then there's a lot, of, a lot of press that goes out, people that out of their own hurt say bad things. So, like, I'm a member of the United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders. I represent the state of Washington. Um, most of the people I've seen in the United States Coalition of Apostolic Leaders or International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders are very godly people. But what anybody does to smear somebody, they take the extremes, like they'll take somebody like Bill Johnson and they'll, 
they'll push, post a bunch of stuff. Well, Bethel's really getting into this cultish stuff, and, you know, so-and-so did this, and, you know, his son said this. Well, yeah, his son said that years ago, but the next Sunday, Bill stood up in front of the church and said, look at my son. He's the new pastor. He said something last week he shouldn't have said. It was wrong. We, we've corrected him. Just wanted you to know that. Well, then people are still publishing that, Christians, five years later, that he said this. To me, that's wrong. And there are certain people that all they're doing is smearing people. They're slandering people in the body. I, I, I know Bill personally. I know his heart. And I know that anything that happens in any church, because you have people, isn't perfect. But, you know, their heart is to bless the body of Christ. Their heart is to transform a city. Their heart, but then there's, they've got Christians smearing them, saying, well, you know, I saw this guy, and they did this. And, and I, I've had people talk about my friends, and they say stuff. So what I've learned to do is just I begin to teach the Scripture, say this is what the Bible says. We're not going to go to this extreme, but this is how we're going to start to function. And we're recognizing people, so they recognize me as an apostolic leader. They've landed hands on me, the elders. We have Jane Hanson Hoyt in the church, who's the Aglo International president. She's been at Sunrise for 25 years, probably maybe even a little more than that. We've commissioned her as an apostolic leader. She's in 170 nations. So you must realize I do believe women can be apostles like Junia. Um, also, we have uh, Dr. List is an apostolic leader from our church. We have another man, George Watkins, who's been in the ministry for almost 60 years and travel nations. We also have Kathy Giske, who's from the Presbyterian Church. She came to our church and got healed three times from a lot of hurt and physical things. And she's on the Luzon Committee. She speaks seven languages. She's taken us into Turkey and to uh, Greece. She's taking us into Lebanon. My wife's half Lebanese. She's always dreamed of going to Lebanon when we go in there in May. We've commissioned them as apostles from the church. It didn't change our whole church. It just, we recognize that these are who God set in. And I'm an apostolic leader, so I'm always thinking of ways to send people. So my son's the senior pastor. I'm the senior apostolic leader. That's the title they gave me. I don't tell my son what to do. He's the senior pastor. But he does invite me for counsel quite often since he's a new pastor since January. And one of the apostolic leaders, Dr. Matthew Thomas, who speaks into our church, he's an elder at large. Dr. List is an elder at large. And Dr. Matthew Thomas, who's from Atarsi, India, who's 70 years old, Dr. List is 78. They speak into our church. They came when we laid hands on John. We flew them back to the church. They, and see, the church sees a model of how healthy apostolic works. We have prophetic leaders, Herb Marks, who we've laid hands on, set apart, Diane Fink, um, we have other people, evangelists that we've laid on, pastors, teachers, our staff. We still operate as a church. We have Sunday services, but we also have equipping centers. We have Seattle Bible College there. It's a third 64-year-old Bible college. I'm the college president. Uh, so someone's teaching my class this Wednesday when I'm not going to be there. So we built a model of showing people how it works. But you have to shift people's mindset. And I, I encourage people to do it slowly and begin to plant seeds. Like, you know, I've had people say, well, I don't believe that. And I go, well. Can you show me from the scriptures what you believe? I always like to bring people back to the scriptures. Well, I want to see from the scriptures. I said, well, here's, here's the model. And I started to study. I had an encounter where the head of Derek Prince ministry showed up at my church unannounced. And he came and walked into my office, fell on his knees, and started weeping and said, Derek Prince Ministries is here to serve Sunrise Christian Center. And I was like, uh, who are you? He goes, I'm Dick Leggett. I'm the president of Derek Prince Ministries. I mean, like I said, like around here or? I, he said, no, I, I'm like, I'm in charge of Derek Prince Ministries internationally. He said, God told me to come here and give you Derek Prince's library. And I'm like, is this really happening? He's in my office weeping with another man. He had an encounter with somebody from my church at a lunch, and 
he started telling about our church, and he said, where's that church at? And so he gave me 50, his 50-some books. He gave me all of his DVDs, all of his radio broadcasts. He gave me over $20,000 worth of material for free as a gift. He gave it to Bill Johnson. He said, when, he said I've, so far I've only given it to you and Bill Johnson. He said, when I gave it to Bill Johnson, Bill looked at me and said, we can't afford that. He goes, no, Bill, it's a, it's, it's a, he said, we can't afford that in our budget for us to pay for this whole thing. And he goes, no, it's a gift, Bill. You don't have to pay for it. He goes, that's in our budget. <laughs> but see, too often what happens is people take shots at people or people publish things and they don't even know the people. They've never talked to the people. Somebody said, well, I heard this meeting and he said this weird thing. And well, every once in a while somebody says a weird thing. And then we realize we said something weird and stupid. I, if I do that, I come back and correct myself and say, I realized somebody corrected me and said, I realized that was, that was wrong. That's a good sign of a leader that will humble themselves. But be careful of people that are just taking pot shots. And so what we did is we began to teach the church. We began to show them, this is how you grow. I'll talk about it when we do. This is how I've seen apostolic leaders grow. They have, they, have a, they have a vision for, for way beyond their area. So my church, we're sending people out. Probably 15 people from our church went to Israel last week. I haven't seen my daughter yet because she got back from Israel while I was leaving. She led 900 people into Israel for a Glow International. Um, there's other people that, there's another lady that's in Lebanon right now. She was in the Philippines before. She's taken teams. So our church is ascending church. We're not so concerned about our seating capacity. We're saying... And so that they, they've seen an action. They see how it works. And they see as an apostolic leader, I've trained and raised up marketplace people. So I have 53 business people that come together. And we've spoken in their business. We've prayed for them. And we said, you're not the ATM machine for the church. I've not asked one business person privately for any money. Never will, never do. I said, we're here to empower you to do what you're called to do. So they've, they've watched what, when it functions and healthy with a servant leadership heart, when it functions the way God intended it to function. And I brought up Dick Leggett because when he gave me the, the books and everything, I'm looking at him, I'm studying fivefold. I'm writing a book on it right now. I'm almost done about how we lay a firm foundation of Christ, how we fitly frame the work and bring all the fivefold ministry into their proper structure, and then God can fill us with his fullness. The Reformed Church and the evangelical leaders are getting a vision that the fivefold is the missing link in the church. Alan Hirsch and others have published many great works. They've been involved with some of us in what we're, what we're doing. And we're trying to build models that show people it's not about control or dominating. It's about releasing and sending people. It's about empowering people. And they come back and give reports to the local church because they're accountable to us. And we're blessing them. We're supporting them. We're resourcing them. And then we, we say this is the proper, you know, John's a senior pastor, but he's an evangelist. And they all know that John's already got an apostolic call. He's growing in. And we show how do you grow as an apostolic leader? What are the steps that you go from here to there? Just because you have an apostolic gifting doesn't mean that you might always get to have the, like an office gift of a full-blown, five-fold ministry recognized around the world. It might be that you're doing it in your local area. But you're going to do it in your local area before you do it in the nations. You're going to do it in your own local church. And the local church is the best incubator or the local fellowship for it to happen. The problem we have in North America, people send millions of dollars to people that are on television. They have no accountability. They don't know what they're doing. They get enamored with a big crowd, and it's not really transforming the church. So when we get back to the local church, they know how I live. They know my car. They know my wife. They know my children. They know my family. I, I can't hide anything from them. They watch me. They live with me. 
And so it's an incredible incubator for God to do. Now we've planted our first church in January, Sunrise Christian Center, Skagit Valley. It's already started. They're going to become their own 5013C. And we're going to plant many Sunrise Christian Centers because we, I, I felt that for a long time. It's one of the most effective ways to plant churches. And so we become a regional center where a lot of the apostolic prophetic people come. They invite themselves to come. Sometimes we invite them if we have relationships. So people like Chuck Pierce, Dutch Seats, Graham Cook, um, all Cindy Jacobs, Todd White, all those people have often come to our church and done conferences with us. They're my friends. I've done things with them. Never ask any of them to come in a sense or try to manipulate them. They've become my friends and something God did. So as you serve and people see this happen, they begin to get a vision because too often it's been a theory, an idea, and so we're trying to build a model. I, the Lord told me if people can see it in action, they can they can replicate it. So that's what we've been doing. And see, it's it's normative for our church. The people in our church believe this. But it took me probably five to seven years to shift the church from the typical, oh, you know, the pastor is in charge of everything and there should be a congregational rule. And I said, where do you see a congregational rule in the scriptures? You don't. But because we've done it for so long, but you can't find really any biblical. And I always go back to if you can show me from the scriptures this model, I'll be glad to adjust our model. Nobody's shown me a model from the scriptures. They say, well, we've always done it that way. That's our denomination. That's the history of our movement. And I said, well, that is what the scriptures say. This is Jesus said how to set in order. So I said, Derek Prince must have written something on the fivefold ministry. And he got a little twinkle in his eye. He goes, yeah, he did. He said it was way before its time. And he said, I'm going to send you two copies so I can tell you're going to mark one up so you won't be able to lend it out to other people. Because I do let people borrow the books. It's called Rediscovering the Church. It's one of the best biblical pictures of how the apostles worked with the elders and the pastors and the teachers and how they functioned together in a team ministry. God loves team ministry. And we've ordained teachers and pastors and recognized them. And then we, I actually do teaching on this is how you grow apostolically. This is how you go from just learning to prophesy to becoming actually carry the office of a prophet. And there's different steps that they take, and we show these are ways. And it's not this is not a, a fast track for you to get to be a prophet or an apostle, but these are the normative things that we've watched through history and from the scriptures that you, you know, if you're an evangelist, you like to witness to people. And after about somebody's been in the, in the church about a year, you know if they're an evangelist or not. There's usually not very, very many evangelists in the church. And you know who they are because they want to evangelize everybody. Everything, they, every message it turns to evangelism. They want to know why everybody's not out street witnessing. And my son's like that. He's led people to Christ all his life. He will be an apostolic evangelist. That's kind of what I was. That's what Paul was. I believe Peter was an apostolic pastor. And we teach people there's gift mixes. And it's very important to know the leader's call because the leader's call will bring other people into alignment. But you have to train people and show them how this works. Because if you just say, well, this is what the Bible says, and you don't give them clear, you know, here's how you this will fit. This is how this will work. Um, all our elders support. When, when the transition came, the elders came to me and said, Pastor, you've been here 32 years. You've trained your son others well. We're keeping your full salary. We're going to support all your mission work in any way it needs to be supported. We're going to release you and send you. I always ask their permission before I leave. I'm in every elder meeting except the last one I was on vacation. We meet once a month. Um, we have about a $2.5 to $3 million budget now that keeps growing. The church keeps growing. We just bought more property, and we're showing people models, and they've said, will you come and help us? And a lot, a lot of time you have to change the mindset because it's so ingrained in the North American church that there's a pastor and a board and 
it's just the way it's, it was more following a, a governmental structure that was checks and balances rather than I think the biblical checks and balances of you know a, a leader amongst peers where there was one elder that would be the leader like when I led the church they would talk to me if they didn't agree with somebody but they didn't hold me back they weren't like one of the deacons used to tell me God sent me here to be able to be the person to say no to you I'm like oh really that's great that's just what I need somebody to say no to me that was the only reason he felt he was called and I realized he shouldn't be a deacon and I had to get pretty strong at the time when things shifted because I said, you know, you don't have my heart, you don't have my vision. And I realized this is how God called me. I've done this all my life. I've seen signs and wonders and miracles, and I've been on the forefront of these things. I can't be something else. I can't be a seeker-sensitive leader. I can't be a, a nicey-nicey leader. And, uh, you know, I, I go for it. You probably figured that out already. I go for stuff. That's the way God made me. And a lot of them, they didn't want anybody else to get saved. I mean, can you imagine being an apostolic evangelist all your life and wanting to see people get saved and have your leader say, well, we don't want any more people in the church? And I'm like going, did they really say that? They, they literally said, that, Pastor, we, we like the church. We, we don't want it. There's 400 people. We don't want anybody. I said, what if, what if your unsaved uncle gets saved? Oh, he can go to another church. And I was like, all this stuff started to come up. I had no idea when I started to, Press the issue because the enemy doesn't want a five-fold church to emerge because, you know what, if you study Ephesians 4, you equip the saints and the fullness of Christ comes when apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers find their proper. It's the only way fullness can come. Only way. And I'll say that unashamedly, and I'll be glad to contend with anybody that disagrees and ask them to show me from the Scriptures. But in the Scriptures, it says that's where the fullness of Christ comes. Because it's his ministry. It's who he is. Jesus is the apostle. He's the prophet. It's just the continuation of who he is. And so you have to kind of help people shift and think through things and say, I've just asked people how it's working for you. Oh, we're down to 50 people. And, you know, these guys on the board are mad. These guys on the board. And they say, well, your model won't work. And I said, well, it's working, been working good for 18 years. I haven't had any problems with it. The church hasn't. We're growing and thriving. And all around the world, these models are being raised up by God in all kinds of nations. And yes, you can always find in companies and businesses people that, you know, they they want to control and manipulate. But it's not it's not the fivefold that's the problem. That's manipulating people that's the problem. So let's call the problem what the problem is. So as soon as they start, they, well, I know this church that got apostolic and you know down the road, and then they started controlling people. I said, well, that's the church down the road. That's not us. Okay, the church down the road, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. But guess what? That's not us. We're here to serve you. We're here to function. We don't care. I tell them, as long as you don't call me late for dinner, you can call me anything else you want. It's not about me having a title or having people carry my Bible. or I'm, I'm a brother in Christ that God caused me to function this way. And if you don't let me function this way, I get frustrated and the body doesn't grow. Because that's what God created me to do. And I'm just here to equip you. I'm here to empower you. And you know what I find? I find all these people being released. We have a couple. They have a marriage ministry. And people come from all over. And they're so good at marriages. They're, they're way better than me at counseling marriage. They'll have 40, 50, 60 people in their marriage class every Wednesday. And they've got groups that disciple. And I just sit back as, a, as, a, as the former senior pastor, and I say, this is what God created. This is what God intended. And we help each other and love each other, and I support what they do, and I cheer them on. And I've never even been to the class. And that's healthy. And a lot of other places that that um, people know that they have certain giftings, but they're not being released. And that's happened particularly with women. And as women come forward, they're being called Jezebels and different things like that to sort of 
Um, so how would you minister to people who know that they have a call in their life but just haven't been been released to that? How, how would you counsel them in that? Um, I think that they just really need to seek the Lord about it. And I found, you know, we used to say things like, um, people would come and say, well, the pastor's got a vision to do this, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm called to do this, and they said, we don't do that here. And I, I had my first encounter privately with Bill Johnson in his office for about an hour and 45 minutes, and he's pretty quiet by nature, and I did most of the talking. I remember I said, so, Bill, what, what do you pray? I thought, i, I got to find out what his secret sauce is in prayer, you know. That's what I'm thinking. He goes, he looks at me and says, what do you pray? That was his answer to my question. I said, I, I pray that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, that he might give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And he goes, that's what I pray. I would like to pray anything else. And he goes, no, that's really the basis of my prayer. I pray for revelation and wisdom, and I pray to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellow. And I was, I was kind of happy that he was praying the same thing I did, but there was part of me that said, I hope he's got like something more than that that can help me. And I, finally, at the end, I did most talking. I said, Bill, is there anything you'd like to say to me? And he said, he, he, he got up, he's got all these animals that he's shot and stuff, and he, he pulls forward. He's from Northern California. They do stuff like that. And he leans over, and he gets right in by my face, and he goes, no matter how anointed and how gifted someone is, if they don't have your heart and your vision, you will constantly frustrate them, and they will constantly frustrate you. And I realized that I had people in my church that were frustrated with what our church was. And so I started to have private meetings with them. I said, look, I know you're really frustrated. You really like this model, the model shifting. I just want you to know if you feel led, I would be glad to release you. It's not that I want you to go, but I think you're frustrated because we're heading this direction and you're heading this direction. I know some churches that are really heading that direction. Now, see, that's, that's losing. That's letting go. But it's better than having them sit there and be disgruntled and be upset and be bothered. And be. And I'm not telling people, all oh, go leave your churches and go somewhere. That's not here in my heart. I love churches, I love pastors, but sometimes you need to sit down with the pastor and just say, Pastor, I'm getting really frustrated because I believe I have a gift. Now, some people believe they have a gift. They don't really have a gift. They really just want to be up front or be in charge. So I would just encourage people to pray and seek the Lord. and Be sure you're in a place where you have the heart and the vision of the leadership because it's really hard to support something you don't believe in. And what happens is people get attitudes, they get this. So I've often counseled people. I've never invited anybody to my church personally. I don't use prophecy say, oh, the Lord showed me you're going to come and be on my st-. I, I watch people do that stuff. It's manipulation. You should never use your gift to manipulate people. So it's very important, I think, to help people think through. And sometimes I've sat down with pastors. I don't want to do this person. I said, they're, they're very frustrated. I'm going to meet with a pastor when I get back, that a girl that grew up in our church and is, is very spirit-filled and She's trained people in their church. He decided he didn't want to go that way. He wanted to be seeker-sensitive. And it's caused a lot of frustration in the church. And she's now just started coming to our church. It's probably a blessing for him because he was getting frustrated with her. She was getting frustrated because people were saying, how come you, know, you don't give words of knowledge anymore or prophesy? And so I, you know, I just, you know, she'd be, be polite and say, well, I don't know. I just, you know, it just hasn't worked out that I, well, she was, the pastor told her not to do it. So now the pastor wants to meet with me and I've dialogued with him. I haven't tried to, get her to come to the church. I've known her since she was a little tiny girl. She almost died. And But sometimes you just have to help people think through, is this really where you're supposed to be? And I always tell them, go get, go get the counsel of your pastor, or your leader, or your apostolic leader. Sometimes the best thing you can do is release people to go after their heart. 
I don't know if that helps at all, but but I think I, I, I would never tell someone, oh, you should come to our church. Our church, I watch pastors do that. That's manipulation. I've gone a little bit over time here. I'm sorry, Bruce. Is there any, one last question? Yes. I had a, a focus on people to the Lord. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Strong, strong people who are doing a correction because of the sake of the body and for the sake of the kingdom, not for their own desires or glorification. Or, and I realized that sometimes as a leader, I had to step up apostolically and tell people that, you know, you need to stop this. We love you. Hurt people tend to hurt people. And I've said you need to go through a healing process before you prophesy because you're prophesying through your woundedness. And so what's happening, because of your wounds, you're, it's coming out in your prophecies. You're mad at the body. You're mad at leadership. I've had people stand up and say, the Lord told me that you know the leaders in this church, it's never a, a person's place to stand up in front of the congregation or a church family and tell the church family that the leaders are this. If they've not personally talked to the leaders, they've not dialogued with the leaders, they shouldn't get up and prophesy a major shift of the, a ministry without talking to the leadership first. Because those are biblical principles that can be violated very easily with someone who just thinks God told them. And, you know, so I always ask people, I always ask permission. Uh, you know, I asked I ask Pastor Bruce when I came here, let us know what we're supposed to do and not do because I'm under his authority when I'm in this church. When I go to the other church, I'll be under their authority. I don't have an agenda. I don't have to do something. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to, you know, so it, it gives you freedom when you're under authority because you're, you're under a covering. You're under... It's just a mutual respect of realize this is the person God's placed here. And so sometimes we just need to help people by saying, you know, as you get older, it gets a little easier. Say, you know, you're really hurt and wounded. We'd really like to pray for you and help you. But for the next season, it would probably be good if you didn't prophesy. We'd like to get you around this lady who's one of our prophets, and she'll she'll help you and guide you and train you if you'd like to. If they don't want to do that, they're just going to keep doing what they do. They'll go somewhere else and do it where somebody lets them do it. But that's not healthy to build up the body. I'll turn it back over to you, Bruce. Thanks for letting me go a little overtime there. It's been very good. <laughs> it's often the uh, icing on the cake that tastes the good. And I think about a half an hour ago, you started into the icing. Uh, <laughs> and it came as a real. Okay. Uh, well, uh, how many of you are... This will be your last session with us. You're not going to be back tonight or tomorrow. How many of you are like that? Okay, uh, would you stand? The, the two of you. And uh, uh, so, Lord, we just thank you for Brother Bob and Brother Steve and for their presence here with us and their connection. And uh, we just bless them. And we send them back to their churches with the anointing and the blessing that has been imparted in this house in this last two days. And we thank you for them. We pray grace upon their lives and uh, that, that you will prosper their churches and their ministries in the name of Jesus. And uh, we give you thanks for them. Amen. And for the rest of you, would you stand? And uh, Lord, we just thank you for... In fact, just lift your hands to the Lord and give him thanks for what you've heard and seen today. Lord, we praise you, we magnify you, we, Lord, we just are in awe of your body and how you fill your body.
and how you join it together and fit each part into a, a perfect body and how you long for that perfect body to be manifest in a very imperfect world. And so we thank you, God, for all the graces and the anointings that you have imparted to your church, for your church to be your kingdom on earth, a church that you are building and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. Thank you, Lord, for this part of that process in our own church here and here in Nova Scotia. And, Lord, uh, we just give you thanks for what you're doing and what you will do in the days to come. And, Lord, I just pray now for rest to come upon your people for these next few hours as we prepare for this time of worship, this time of ministry. And, Father, we pray for those that will be called to come into this meeting tonight that are broken, that are unsaved, that are uh, discouraged, have a, a need for healings, deliverances. Lord, we pray for a full manifestation of your spirit and anointing to meet the needs of the people that are here. And we'll be here tonight in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.